Thank you. Good introduction. Look, in fact, she said about everything I was going to say. Um, I, I'll say just a little bit more about the main characters. Um, they are Maggie, the lost college girl, uh, the greenest on the track. The reason that she's on the track at all is that she has literally run into this young horse trainer, good looking but unstable, named Tommy Hansel. Um, and Maggie and Tommy by now have working for them this old time black groom from South Carolina, 72 years old, who would have better sense than to work for such a fly-by-night operation as theirs. But the trainer that his fortunes were attached to has suddenly died of a heart attack after winning a race. Um, then there's um, a, a loan shark, Tutai, who happens to be related to Maggie, but he's not very important in the section I'm going to read. The villain of the story who does come up is um, named Big. Um, and he's the leading trainer at the, t at the track um, who really can hardly allow anybody else to get their hands on anything of value. Um, and then there's finally uh, another um, trainer of the kind that on the track is called a, a gyp, a gypsy trainer, meaning an itinerant trainer who usually just has one horse and a very marginal operation. Her name is Ducey Gifford. Um, now after telling you this cast of characters, um, I'm going to say that uh, the character that I will follow some way through the book is a horse, not a person. It's Little Spinoza. Um, Little Spinoza is one of the classiest horses at this very low-down, run-down track, Indian Mountain Downs. He sold um, for $20,000 at Keeneland when he was a yearling to that leading trainer, Joe Dale Big who expected to get a derby horse out of Little Spinoza, but the horse has never measured up to his class. He has serious behavior problems. He goes crazy in the gate, and he doesn't behave well in a stall. He actually has kicked Joe Dale Biggs' son in the head, uh, which um, is a famous story of, at the track. The thing with the dentist, they say. The thing with the dentist is the, the, the incident where the horse went crazy and managed to kick. Biggie big. Um, okay, L little Spinoza is a problem in the stall and a quitter in the gate who has so enraged Joe Dale Big that tormented bully that he is, he can't even give up on the horse, but instead decides to sell him on the cuff to get him out of the way of Biggie Big um, to whoever will take him for um, $3,000, nothing in front. This is a very common thing on the racetrack. Um, a sale on the cuff means you don't have to pay anything until the horse wins something. Of course, he doesn't think the horse will ever win anything. But um, the people who buy him are a very unexpected trio. They are Ducey Gifford, that Jip, who I just mentioned, um, and Maggie, 
the glossed college girl and medicine ed, that 72-year-old black groom. Each of them puts up a 1000 bucks, and they buy the horse free and clear. And Joe Dale Big is really enraged about this. Of course, they can't do anything with him unless they change his temperament somehow. So the first thing they do, he's about a six-year-old horse, is try to calm him down, however they can do it. When Medicine Ed finally had little Spinoza alone, he tell it in to him, get ready, son, the women gone to take your manhood, he broke the news. Not like it was the end of the world, and next come disease, hospital cases, and death, but like it was a thing the horse ought to know. The first cold had come, and they were walking round and round the shed row in a silver fog that beaded up the cobwebs and the horse's eyelashes. Want no idea of mine, I say, wait a short while, see how he do. Nothing ain't gone change that horse much at his age. I say a little bit of a crybaby, that's all, but easy to settle once you riled. You be surprised, I tell him. Ain't even all that interested in the senoritas compared to what you would think. They don't want to listen. They don't want to take no chances. They don't want to lose the edge. I say, what if castration changed him the other direction into a chucklehead girl? They start to laugh, and pretty soon they cackling like witches, got me outnumbered what it is. Medicine Ed checked himself. This was a stab back and two-faced thing to say about the women. They don't mean no harm, he added. He didn't want to be a wrong influence on the horse. What good it do if the horse love him and hate them others? They have business now. Little Spinoza, don't fuss. My fact, he had to admit the horse taken to prancing and corvetting round lately, high in his nature compared to how he used to do. He was always in a good mood these days. Could be too good. Maybe it was the change in the weather. Maybe he don't rightly follow about his manhood. He always was a baby. He's scoping around at the cats, the raindrops, pimpling the puddles, the sparrows hopping up and down and cussing each other in the eaves. He stopped and had him a long sniff of Grizzly's goat. Now that Ducey had the two horses, she bought Grizzly a $10 goat to keep him company. When the goat wasn't in the stall, he was tied up like now on a chain in the grass patch between the shed rows, but he always pulled it out tight as a fiddle string if folks was around, for he was nosy. Medicine Ed returned to the subject at hand. It's one thing you can count on, son. When they gone, they gone. You never know what you missin'. Only a thing, you be lighter of heart. Anyhow, he say unto the horse, First he spied round to see what devil-born varmint might be listening, a crow, say, or Ducey's slit-eye goat. You know, I be a little of a doctor man. I take them things and do you good with them, you hear? You don't got to worry. You in good hands. But little Spinoza was only interested in that satchel-belly ten-dollar billy goat. First he jumped back like insulted when the goat lift his head at him and stare. What you think this is, son? Ain't nothing but a spotted he-goat. Good for nothing, save to be the horse's friend. He gone urinate in your hay and shove his head in your feed bucket and race you to your eats. You don't mind out, he win, too. You want that? 
Medicine Head reached down and touched that peculiar armor plate forehead of the goat between his coin slot eyes and shuddered. But little Spinoza danced around and looked happy and won a billy goat all his own. So a little time passes and the vet comes to do this job. Um, this chapter is um, notorious for changing points of view at a whim. Um, you'll see. When Hazlip, the vet, finally showed up with his little bag in the afternoon in the rain, looking mud-spattered and harassed, Ducey happened to have taken a ride into town to buy a pair of reading glasses at the dime store. Tommy, who had been asked to help if this happened, Maggie winced. Somehow she hadn't gotten around to telling Tommy yet who's all horse little Spinoza actually was. Paraded them all out to the grass patch at the end of the shed row where it was cleaner and they would have more room. And then they stood there in the cold drizzle, shifting from foot to foot while Tommy dragged away the $10 goat that Ducey had bought for Grizzly. They had forgotten about the goat. Maggie held the interested but unsuspecting little Spinoza, who despite his notorious encounter with a racetrack dentist, everyone knew that story, seemed more drawn by the weird blue crucifix eyes of the goat than troubled by the brusque stranger with a black bag. Little Spinoza was still looking over his shoulder into the empty stall, his own, where the small but smelly and baaing goat had disappeared, when a little commotion happened at his neck, and suddenly the earth fell up to meet him. His blood turned to warm solder, his penis dropped limp out of his body, and his knees melted. He sank to the grass. His elbows and stifles drained away. He rolled over on his side. His huge tongue wanted to fall out of his mouth. He was not sleepy, but gravity had won a great victory and he wished never to get up again. He watched incuriously as the two men went around behind him and squatted, and one of them somehow picked up his leg and moved it a little and held the great black riverine tail out of the way. There was a pleasant tinkle of metal, a feeling of deep and strange but painless emptying, another not so agreeable snip, 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 two grayish pink, wet, egg-like bodies sparsely threaded with blood vessels lay in the grass. That was it. Already his face looked less alien and goofy. They stood there waiting for his legs to come back under him. The queerest thing was the long, thin, infinitely elastic tubes hanging down like spittle from the shiny balls before Hazlip snipped them away. Maggie saw Medicine Head slide out of the tack room and pick up the testicles out of the grass in a silver can. It could have been a soup can, nicely washed out and with the label neatly removed. And then he faded away again, presumably around the corner. She blinked. She hadn't known he was there. In fact, he hadn't been there, or Tommy would certainly have called him over and made him drag away the $10 goat instead of doing that ridiculous job himself. 
These days when Maggie was alone with little Spinoza after he had walked or, or, or worked and had his bath, she rubbed him. She didn't exactly know the derivation of this ancient slang for what a groom is supposed to do to a horse. Only that was what the old guys told people they did. Been rubbing horses nigh on 35 years now. Or back when I rub horses for happy blunt at hot springs, whatever it meant. But she sensed a thread had been dropped somewhere. The route to some secret heart of this business had been lost. She didn't know anyone who literally rubbed a horse, not even old Ducey. She asked Medicine Ed. That come from way back in England or Paris, France or somewhere, when the thoroughbred racehorse run five miles over open ground, hills and stone walls and that, and come back half dead under a blanket to a barn with no running hose water, let alone hot. So they rub the horse dry and warm. Babies get rubbed, he added, if you work for a barn that got babies. Rich folks had babies. Tommy Hansel had the geezers of the trade. Back in Charlestown, she had hauled to the laundromat a bunch of old croaker sacks she had found in the Peshot's barn. They had been many times stained, washed and dried, until they were the color of a healing bruise. Long ago, someone had left the pile of them stiffening in a corner. But they washed out soft and sweet. And now she rubbed little Spinoza up with them from his ankles to his ears. She rubbed in a round, hypnotic, finger-painting motion, but hard, feeling for some remotely erotic synapse of disease from the ends of her fingers into his bones and muscles, which wasn't as easy through, through the pink gunny as it had always been barehanded with Pelter. She had to slow down time, go into a kind of trance state where sweet electricity pooled at her nerve endings like nectar on the pistol of a honeysuckle. And then by running her fingers over the animal, she could find his hidden landing places. Not that these were jungle airstrips, few and hard to find. They were all over the place. But you had to approach the body boundary, reduced to this one brooding spark. You dangled from a headland, black empty space rushing by, and suddenly you were across. The key was being tuned down so fine that you felt the crossing. Without that, your fingers were just dead prongs on a rake, and nothing happened. True, it helped to be stoned, which he was rather often. Zeno had left behind in the crushed trailer a chunk of hashish the size of a square of baking chocolate, the ginger color and yielding consistency of puppy feces. And Tommy had bought it from Medicine Ed, who had no use for that stuff, for a yard. Plenty of times they had a little curl like a cedar shaving for breakfast. Rubbing little Spinoza without it took more concentration, a willed death of talky ratiocination up there under the pigtails. She had to hang up on the telephone of her mind, and then it worked. Oh, didn't it work. Come to find out the dangerous speculation grandson was a pushover, the model of innocent delight. It was alarming, in fact, how trusting he was once you made him feel good, how forgiving of all the predecessor pain, how unsuspecting the joy would ever end. Unlike Pelter, who shot up out of her intimate handling from time to time without warning, 
with a rip-roaring snort and the urge to do mischief, nip or kick. Little Spinoza melted away into the dream of bliss. He let her do anything to him. After she rubbed him dry and warm, she brushed him deep all over with an ordinary charwoman scrub brush, then every day worked a little at his mane and tail, patiently dug through and pulled the years of knots and snags. Little Spinoza stood for all of it. His dapples came up like God's golden fingerprints. He crackled. He glowed. Even when she felt the pleasure running along his withers and flanks and waves and literally crimping up his spine, he didn't protest, just bent into it like a ballerina in a pas de deux. Look at you, you big silly. How are you ever going to fend for yourself, she mumbled into the warm curve of his back. But then you never were a man's man either, were you? Well, I hope you can still run now that you're not scared. She looked him in the eye, and he blew into her face a great warm drench of hayflowers. Well, they take him to his first race, and it's a terrible race. I mean, he looks good until he gets almost into the gate. They've gotten the best jockey at the track to ride him, and this jockey doesn't appreciate being frightened. Um, and since he almost turns over in the gate, the jockey is hanging off him, hanging off his side when they come out of the gate, and uh, barely rides himself. And at the end of the race, he's furious. He's uh, let's throws the horse's reins away, so the horse runs towards the infield, slashes him with his whip in the testicles in the, uh, oh, he doesn't have any testicles, um, in the genitals and uh, across his face. And, um, and now the horse looks worse than ever. I mean, even to find somebody to ride him is not easy. Um, they have to use their exercise girl who has just gotten what they call a bug, meaning an asterisk by her name. So she's an apprentice jockey. She can she can ride at the racetrack, even though she's not fully qualified. Um, and they have to use her, Alice, to uh, be the jockey for the horse. So without very much hope, they get him ready for another race. And this race will be very different. We're back in Medicine Ed's point of view. Seemed like every day since time, he'd been thinking what a shame and pity it is, how the world is coming down how the pride of work has disappeared until they just laugh at him, the boys that come on the racetrack now. How the horses is misused and abused, started out racing too young before they bones his heart, not rested proper, and dosed with all kind of shots and pills, and so consequently don't last. How these five-and-dime horse trainers and they ten-cent owners anymore be tighter than the bark on a beech tree when it come to anything but rush, rush, rush them horses back to the track and collect a bet. It ain't no real sportsman round here no more, if it ever was, or either sportswomen. And John Q. Public wasn't no dumber than he used to was, but also he ain't no smarter. Seemed like since time that was the most fun old medicine had been having, studying on it every day, every day, how this good thing has come down, and this other thing that once was fine has went to pieces on him until he be sick and tired of his own self 
And then he land up in his mashed-in trailer in the deep of night, mumbling through his bald gums and mixing up some pocket Toby to get his own back, snatching blind at any thread that maybe tie his luck to him. And which is why every now and then when some kind of a good thing come together in nature and make the whole world new, seem like once again he have found that harmony, how there is a power in charge and strong secret threads lead around and under and tie it all together. And which is what happened that night with little Spinoza. He might have known that Alice Newsom, who didn't resemble no other human being he has ever seen, man nor either woman, would have to be a luck thrower of some kind. The way she looked, not ugly, but like something born between mud and river water, like something out of a creek swamp. A person must figure fate has already laid a shaping hand on her and is satisfied. Or can't do no worse. Or maybe mean to make it even to her in some way. Nothing in little Spinoza's routine changed behind that bad race. It was still Alice on little Spinoza at 4.15 in the morning, and old Ducey peering into the fog from the river with her spyglass and stopwatch, clocking little Spinoza's little, little bit of speed. And which was still there, the speed? Now it ain't even no one to hide it from. Early Beaufet has done them the favor to badmouth little Spinoza and his trainer and three cockamamie owners, too. Horse be no count, they say. A killer in the gate and a quitter in the stretch with a hard, ruinated mouth. One more incident and management gone be stamping his folding papers not fit for racing. And the apprentice jockey them three have found under a rock somewhere since early quit them. A townie, a female, and ugly enough to scare a hound dog off a gut wagon. And a bug boy at that. You know how they say about a bug boy. He save you seven pounds in the gate and add 30 pounds in the stretch. And this is a horse even early Beaufet couldn't get no stretch run out of him. So this time, for two weeks, everybody keep that clear of the horse you think he carry, that equine, Cephalitis. Not even Joe Dale Big come round. And then, Ducey drops him in for 3000 Everybody think they see them coming. Everybody figure the plain, obvious truth. Them are the broke, pitiful owners of Little Spinoza that done shelled out their last $2 bill on that horse the colored groom, the he-she trainer, and the lost college girl. Them three are gone trying to get him claimed for what they paid for him, which was far too much money already. But what Alice Newsom say is this. Whoever come up with that idea that little Spinoza has early speed, he has speed all right, and it is an exact amount coiled up in him the way a black snake will live, snug under your well cover all winter. He is a one-run horse, but of a very classy kind, Alice say. He has an exact amount of speed, which could last an exact time, from the last possible moment when you call on him until that wire. But until now, he has squandered it early. He is like some corner zoot suitor cut loose with his mama's death benefit before he has become a man before he has grown sense to put it in the bank or either a choice bit of real estate. 
he come out the gate going every which way in terror and pure foolishness. He go every which way, and finally he tire and die, and if the boy hit him, he wither up besides. And yet, he is a dreamer horse who liked to look at ducks splashing down on the river and hawks sailing on the wind. Alice say, what if he could sleep like Sleeping Beauty, only on his feet with no pain, and stay asleep till I wake him up at the quarter pole? Medicine Ed can follow her idea, as long as the pace up front ain't too slow, long as the front runners be halfway honest, he might could get there. To rate him, Alice has to hypnotize the horse a little, and she says she can do it. How can she? Oh, she has her little ways, she say. Maybe I sing him to sleep. And she smiles that no-lip smile that put Medicine Ed in mind of a newt. Alice couldn't prove it. She showed them in a little trial with Grizzly and Miss Fowlerville and Railroad Joe how little Spinoza comes swooping by in the stretch. True, them others wasn't but 2000 or even $1,500 horses. And two belonged to Hansel, but the young fool had suddenly drove off somewhere for two days to see about a horse and left Minnesonette in charge. Naturally, a lit-up grandstand and a thousand screaming betters be something different from dark and silence at first morn, let alone a paddock judge poking in his mouth and the starter man grabbing his ear or snatching his lip in the gate. All the same, that is Alice's idea which do have the beauty to tie all the parts together. They look for a weekend race, so it is a decent handle. They don't talk about it, but they all fixin' to cash that bet. Won't anybody in the house like Spinoza save for them three? Thank you, Lord. Of course, Medicine Ed must tell Tutai, for he will need him a small advance. And Tutai have his own people no way round that. And might probably that old porcupine Ducey have somebody she got to let in, some orphan or hard case. And who can doubt but what the frizzly-haired girl gone to tell the young fool all, though old Ducey may have suspicioned that, and maybe she liked this week on purpose when Hansel has disappeared somewhere to see a man about a horse. All signs saying that sad day, first sad day in December, be a fair day and a good track, not wet and heavy, nor either too hard froze. And soon as there was a card to study, Ducey and Medicine Ed and Alice went over the entries, prepared to scratch if it was no speed in the race. But they was two clear front runners for sure gone to fight it out up there, the one horse, Ink Spot, and the six horse, Navy, something, and the four horse might be in it too, Medicine Ed disremembered the name. Little Spinoza drew post-position number eight in an eight-horse race, but this time that high number worked to his good. This way, Little Spinoza automatically be the last load in the gate instead of a problem case, getting the starters nervous and mad until they might do something in anger that could hurt the horse or, worse, wake him up. And anyhow, Alice knows him been with Little Spinoza in the gate three times already since that bad race and say he is cured. Lord, put me wise. Alice Newsom say she gonna sing little Spinoza to sleep, and that is exactly what she do. 
and through her standing in the goat gap for the post parade when Alice and little Spinoza tack by, them all three look at each other and their mouths fall open and they close them again. Ducey yanks the stiffened handkerchief out from under her flask and wipes her head. The frizzly-haired girl laughs kind of funny time behind her hand. Deep in his pocket, Medicine Ed rubs a red flannel bag between dog finger and thumb, for they have heard Alice singing. It ain't a big voice, but pointy and sharp as a stick. By and by, when the morning comes, all the saints, why, it's a song his mother used to sing in church, one he knew long ago. All the saints gone to gather in the home. And maybe it is his imagination, but he think little Spinoza is listening. The horse go along, last in line, far away in his face, but collected. His ears prick up tall, quivering. And there is Alice, high up on his back, with her little bony knees pointed in, hypnotizing him with her small, steely voice. Alice lean into his neck and them raggedy silver silks, which Ducey bought for four butts, bucks from somebody. <laughs> Sorry. Alice lean into his neck and them raggedy silver silks, which Ducey bought for four bits from somebody's stable that was busting up. Medicine Ed had to pin them together behind her neck with a bandage pin. He never hear no announcement, so many minutes to post time. He hear his mother's voice from the wings of New Life Baptist Church in Cambrai. Not a little metal thread wire like Alice's, but big as a house. In the land of perfect day, when the mist has rolled away, we will understand it better by and by. Then he ain't hear nothing. His mother's voice was all around him, he didn't recall looking at no tote board, but yet and still he knew when the numbers stand at 35 and fall to 22, back up to 25, to 22, and all of a sudden down to 12. And then the horses were at the gate and in the gate, each by each. He saw a little Spinoza step into the eight slot, civil as you please, like a man walking a cloakroom to ask for his hat. Then they break, and it was all eight of them in a line. Yes, little Spinoza was right with the others on top of his feet, his feet drumming in that cold sand, his head stretching forward. But then Medicine Ed get that draggified, sunken feeling that him and Ducey and the frizzly-haired girl be the only ones looking, the onlyest ones looking where little Spinoza be at, that is. For where he was was no other horse to see. Then they was all together in one small sinking boat, him and Ducey and the frizzly girl and Alice and little Spinoza. That's how far back little Spinoza was running. They had no strength even to shout his name. Trouble cotton up their lungs. Disappointment sit heavy on their heads. They can just about lift their chin and watch. There was no way in the world that horse could make it back in this race. That Alice knows him so far off in her rating until she have to be thinking of getting there yesterday, or maybe tomorrow, not today. Medicine Ed look up front. It's a whole nother race gone on up there. The four horse trying to open it up in front. 
the one horse stalking him two lengths back on the rail, and the three horse dogging the one horse at his elbow. And the rest of the field knotted up on the inside five, six lengths back, like soup greens hanging off a long spoon. But even if you want to lose little Spinoza in this pack, you can't. He is lollergagging along ten lengths back of the others, dead last. Medicine Ed is going to be not 250, but 450 in the hole with Tutai. And Tutai himself will take a beating in the race. Medicine Ed will look like a damn fool, more than what he already do. And on top of that, his good credit gone. Just when he want to drop his head and his hands for shame, Medicine Ed, hear the words. We will understand it better by and by. And that's when little Spinoza start to make his move. Alice climb up some way on his neck and take hold, but she don't use no stick. They have got just three-eighths of a mile to go, and they don't even look at that mess on the inside. In their hurryment, they go round. And there it is again, gobbling up ground like a black steam shovel. Here come little Spinoza and Alice, flying up the stretch. Here come the speculation grandson, flat out sailing around the six and seven horse and sliding up between the five and the two like a black polished claw in a mahogany hand, opening, closing, opening out again, inside the four horse but unfaded out of it, and the three horse who make one last push, but it ain't enough, and swooping up on Inkspot whose boy look round at the wire, but it is too late. Only Ducey yelled a little, Medicine Ed then lost his voice. He bowed his head for the beauty of it and because it come from his dead mother. Also the frizzly head girl ain't squeal nor holler. Her eyes was wide and shining and she sink her fingers into his bony arm behind the elbow and squeeze so hard it hurt. I can't believe I saw that, she say. It was so great. For once he almost liked her hungry ignorance, which at least it wasn't small or mean. The three of them head for the winter circle, floating on that cloud through the people towards the gap, just believing their luck, kicking through dead tickets and grease-pearled pizza plates, hardly moving their feet. Man takes his picture. Then they waiting to see what little Spinoza will pay, and that cloud medicine head ready to feel free. He wished... Gusino was alive to see him, or Charles Philpot. He wished anybody was alive to see him. The young fool was way up north somewheres, seeing about a horse. He hinted it was an owner in the works. The young fool had been let in. In a winking, sporting way, he had rode ten dollars on little Spinoza, but he didn't have no faith. Only Medicine Head caught Joe Dale Big standing yonder outside the winter circle. He come down to earth with a thump, for Ed could see it. Joe Dale believed. Joe Dale believed, and it was worse than the other white boss disbelieving that them three were able. Joe Dale believed more than it was there to believe in. He believed it had all been one big plan, and which was to make him look like a fool. Joe Dale Big was a half-bald man with a big forehead, just now, the forehead glow in front like a boiled egg. His thick hair stand out a little crumped from his head. His dark eyes were watching them three. 
His arms was folded across his chest like a judge. Medicine Ed remembered to take in the little red flannel bag between his fingers and softly rub. He knew he couldn't do nothing for Ducey. Her trouble was coming. He knew the frizzly-haired girl must suffer, too. But he would be safe. Inside his pocket piece used to be anvil dust and a thumbnail of blue getaway goofer powder dressed with a drop of jockey club fast luck oil he order in from Lucky Heart Curios, Memphis, Tennessee. Every dime store conjurer in South Carolina had the same. But now it's a strong leave-alone powder in there, too. He has the scooped-up going-away tracks of all three of them white bosses at the mound who like to scheme and get in your business and can't be satisfied and want it back what any many little bit of anything you finally lay hold of. This speckle stuff give him keep-away power over the stall man, Suitcase Smithers, and racing secretary, Chenille, and the leading trainer, Joe Dale Big. And just in case, his boss, Tommy, is in there, too. Medicine Ed taken the red flannel bag between his fingers and rub. He said, In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, I ask you to take all the bad luck off me and make it go on them who trying to take from me what I done rightly win. Put the harm on them and let it go back to the devil where it come from. And he rubbed and listened to them clicking softly together in this strong leave-alone powder. The carefully parched, manly parts of little Spinoza smoked down to the size of marbles over a dry wood fire. Thank you.